initial legal disclaimer, where I tell you that the views, thoughts, and opinions shared on this podcast belong solely to our guests and hosts, and not necessarily Brady or Brady's affiliates. Please note, this podcast contains discussions of violence that some people may find disturbing. It's okay. We find it disturbing, too. Welcome back to another episode of Red, Blue, and Brady. I'm one of your hosts, JJ, but I'm flying solo today, sadly, without my co-hostess with the mostest, Kelly. But we absolutely had to get this episode out to you, talking about a recent Fifth Circuit Court decision, the United States versus Rahimi, that is having a big impact already on folks across the United States. Not sure what that court case is? Don't worry, we're going to fill you in. I'm joined by the fantastic Shira Feldman legal counsel here at Brady, and she's about to break down how this court case came about and what it means for you. Hey, Shira, thanks so much for joining us. Can you just tell for our listeners you know, a little bit about who you are, what you do at Brady, besides, of course, being amazing? I, at Brady, I am litigation counsel, and I do much of our Second Amendment work, which means that I work with state and city governments to defend their gun laws. And I also coordinate all of our amicus briefs, which are briefs that Brady files in a variety of cases in support of gun regulations or other laws that are important in reducing gun violence. And how do you get on that as a career track? Because I'm always just, I whatever folks come on to kind of talk about you know, like we're in a niche within a niche within a niche, right? And I'm always just curious, what what brought you here? So I went to law school to do public interest work. I wasn't able to do it right away. But the last thing that I did before I came to Brady was that I was a partner at a small law firm where I did mostly human rights work. And that was great. But I really wanted to work for a not-for-profit that was doing life-saving public interest work. And so when this job was available at Brady, it just seemed like the perfect thing to do. Well, and we were very excited to be able to, to have you kind of come on and, and join us. And you're kind of in an awkward position today because I'm using you, Shira, as our Schoolhouse Rock moment for everyone out there. Uh, but we're just Schoolhouse Rockin', a series of... Uh, decisions about gun laws <laughs> in the U.S. So I can't make up a good song for any of this, which is unfortunate. Not my area of expertise. We'll have to survive. <laughs> Somehow all of you will, listeners. You'll just have to get by. But what I would love for us to do is do kind of a little timeline of, you know, these these three big decisions that are already, you know, having a huge impact on folks' lives in the U.S., Sure. And so we're going to start with two cases that I think we've talked a lot about on this podcast, but it's always nice to kind of, ugh, not nice, but it's always good to revisit them. And that's Heller and Bruin. So maybe can we start with, you know, Heller? What was the Heller decision? What was its impact? Sure. So District of Columbia versus Heller was a 2008 Supreme Court decision that really upended our understanding of what the Second Amendment to the Constitution means. Before Heller, for a couple of centuries, courts understood that the Second Amendment was about a collective right, which related to malicious service. And I just want to read the amendment to you because it's short and it will give you a good understanding of why everyone thought this was a collective right related to malicious service. So the Second Amendment goes, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And that sounds an awful lot like the right is about the security of the free state and the militia protecting the security of the free state. It's important to remember that you didn't have an army or police forces in the same ways that you do now when this amendment was passed. So that's what we understood. And then Heller comes along in 2008 and it says no. The controlling part of the amendment is the second part, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. That's what matters. And so the Supreme Court says that the Second Amendment is actually an individual right to defend what it refers to as hearth and home. So that's Heller. And to give a little bit of information about what happens after Heller before we get to Bruin, after Heller, trial and appellate courts weren't really sure how to analyze Second Amendment claims. And they ultimately settled on a framework that is based on how courts analyze a number of other constitutional rights. First, you ask whether the law being challenged imposes a burden on conduct that falls within the scope of what the Second Amendment protects. And then, if the law does impose that burden, you apply what's referred to as scrutiny, meaning you ask what the government interest is that's being advanced by the law, and whether the government is advancing that interest in a way that is narrow, meaning it doesn't affect the constitutional right more than it has to. And when it comes to analyzing constitutional rights, there are several different levels of scrutiny. So I should note that I'm oversimplifying just a little bit. But under this framework that I just laid out, many gun laws were upheld as constitutional by the courts after Heller. That's from 2008 until this past year. June of 2022, the Supreme Court decides another case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And that case was a challenge to New York's concealed carry permitting scheme, which had been around for about 120 years. And under that scheme, you couldn't get a permit to carry a concealed weapon without a special need to do so, meaning that you didn't just have, you weren't just a person who wanted a gun. You had to have a particular specific to you reason for having it. The NRA's New York affiliate challenged the law and the Supreme Court struck it down. And what the Supreme Court said when it struck down Bruin was not just that it was finding New York's law unconstitutional. It also rejected the test that I described before that courts had been using for 14 years to analyze Second Amendment challenges to laws. And it created a whole new constitutional test for the Second Amendment. Thank you for for kind of mentioning how this has changed things. And and one of the ways I keep seeing this being referred to in articles is that now there's this quote unquote Bruin test. And I wonder if you can explain for us what that Bruin test is and and what its implications are. Absolutely. And so what the Bruin test says is that when you now analyze you being a court, a challenge to a law based on the Second Amendment, you first ask whether the conduct that's restricted or banned by the law falls within the plain text of the Second Amendment. So to give you an example of what doesn't fall within the plain text of the Second Amendment, commercial restrictions don't fall within the plain text of the Second Amendment because the Second Amendment doesn't talk about sales. It talks about keeping and bearing arms. And so if the conduct does fall within the plain text, then the government, which is generally defending these laws, has to put forth evidence of a historical tradition of firearm regulation in the United States. 
And it has to show that the law being challenged is analogous, that's the court's word, to laws from earlier in U.S. history. And the Supreme Court does say very clearly that in looking for a historical analogy, you only need to find a law that is that, analogous. You don't need to find a law that is a historical twin. So you don't need a law that says exactly the same thing as the law that's currently being challenged. The court also does give some guidelines about how to decide what is analogous. And it refers to what it calls two metrics for determining that which um, are the how and the why of the present law and of the historical law. Not to, not to cut you off, but can you give an example of what that actually looks like, you know, what this plays out like? Because every time I hear there needs to be you know, a tie to history, obviously, you know, my hackles rise a little bit because American history, you know, not everyone has always been, say, you know, counted as a person historically um, in our nation. And so that immediately, you know, I get I get concerned, as I think a lot of folks do. There are a lot of people in the United States who are part of the United States who were not considered or included when the Second Amendment was written or when it was incorporated to the states. It was it was ratified in 1791 and it was incorporated in 1868 with the 14th Amendment. And at neither of those times did a lot of people have rights or voting rights. But to go back to that question for a second about what it means to look at the how and the why, an example would be to look at a restriction on a law, and this is going to take us to the next case that we're talking about, that restricts guns because it restricts it from certain categories of people that we consider to be dangerous. And so how does it restrict it? It restricts it by banning possession, for example. And why does it restrict it? It restricts it because we consider a certain group of people dangerous. And what might be different might be who those people are, because our understanding of what dangerous meant in 1840 is very different from our understanding of what and who dangerous is now. But that's what I mean when I talk about the how and the why. No, I think that that's really, really helpful, Shira, to break down because there are no twins in this. But we do have historical law on firearms regulation. We do have historical law on, on limits for firearms. Absolutely. That doesn't seem to be the focus, though. Yeah, we, ha- we have firearm regulations that go all the way back well before the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, through the time that the Bill of Rights was written, and up through when the Bill of Rights was incorporated to the states and after that. You know, we have we have laws from the 14th century through to the 21st century. And I think that that takes us really well to the case that you mentioned today, this third case that, that we're hitting, which is the United States versus Rahimi, right? And I wonder if you can just start by giving us a, a breakdown of that case. You know, what what caused it, what what was the, you know, kind of forces behind this case being brought up, because then we have to talk about what its impacts are, right? Because spoiler alert. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Spoiler alert. It it has an effect. Yeah. So I want to start by giving you the facts of the case. And I want to do that by reading to you from the court opinion that we're going to discuss, because I want to make it clear to your listeners what everyone in this case is agreeing happened. So the court opinion says, between December 2020 and January 2021, 
Rahimi was involved in five shootings in and around Arlington, Texas. On December 1st, after selling narcotics to an individual, he fired multiple shots into that individual's residence. The following day, Rahimi was involved in a car accident. He exited his vehicle, shot at the other driver, and fled the scene. He returned to the scene in a different vehicle and shot at the other driver's car. On December 22nd, Rahimi shot at a constable's vehicle. On January 7th, Rahimi fired multiple shots in the air after his friend's credit card was declined at a Whataburger restaurant. So that is the context for what happens here. And after these shootings, the Arlington, Texas Police Department identifies Zaki Rahimi as the person who was a suspect in the shootings and obtains a warrant to search his home. And they find firearms. And... It turns out that Rahimi was the subject of a domestic violence restraining order. And under federal law, it is illegal for someone who is subject to a domestic violence restraining order to have firearms, to possess them. Now, I want to note a couple of additional things. One is that Rahimi agreed to the restraining order. He did not contest it. And another is that he committed several crimes, but... The only issue here was his violation of that law I mentioned, 18 U.S.C. 922 G8, which is what prohibits someone who is the subject of a domestic violence restraining order from having a firearm. And so then you ask sort of how did we get here? So Rahimi was indicted by a federal grand jury for having a firearm in violation of that law. And he challenged his indictment. And in doing so, he challenged the law that made his conduct criminal. And he did that based on the Second Amendment. So I want to give your listeners just a quick crash course on federal courts, because it's going to matter in a second. Read my mind, Shira, please. Could you? There are three levels of federal courts for most cases in the United States. And People probably know this, but just in case. You have district courts in every state, which are the trial courts. Then you have the appellate courts, which here appeals from the district courts. And they're divided up by circuits that each include multiple states. And then there's the Supreme Court. And critically here, a district court is obligated to follow the law as it's been interpreted by the circuit court in which it sits. So this case was in federal district court in Texas, and that's part of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals had previously decided in a different case that this law that we're talking about was constitutional. And so when Rahimi challenged the law, the trial court said, no, you can't challenge it. The Fifth Circuit, which I am bound to follow, has already said that it's constitutional. And Rahimi then pled guilty. But after he pled guilty, he filed an appeal to the Fifth Circuit, the court that had originally determined that the law was constitutional. And at first, the Fifth Circuit agreed with the district court and said that this law is constitutional. But after the Bruin decision, which we just talked about, the Fifth Circuit decided to reconsider. And so it's reconsidering whether this law is constitutional is what brought us to this decision. And in this decision, the Fifth Circuit says no. The law is not constitutional. It is a violation of the Second Amendment to prohibit someone who is the subject of a domestic violence restraining order from having a firearm. So much there. <laughs> so much in that in that decision. I wonder, can you, I, I mean, you started to detail there like the impact that it has, right? Because if that's the decision, then that's what's being passed in the Fifth Circuit. So I want to be clear yes. too, as, as you've pointed out, that it's not national. This is... Yeah, this is just in the Fifth Circuit. It's not national. 
Um, and we can talk about whether it's going to become uh, a decision that has national implications in, in just a second. But I wonder for, you know, at, at the state level, what, what are kind of then the implications of, of something like this passing? Like, what does this mean to folks on the ground? Sure. So the immediate impact is that it's no longer a crime under federal law for people subject to a domestic violence restraining order, people like Rahimi, to have a gun if they live in one of the three states that are covered by the Fifth Circuit, which is Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. That's the immediate impact. If that person has a firearm, you can't prosecute them anymore under that law. I think the broader impact, though, which is really important, is that this decision shows us the dangers and problems with the Bruin decision. Because the court in this case, in its decision, showed us how malleable the Bruin standard is and how it can be read to strike down virtually any gun law. And let me explain what I mean by that. So in cases similar to this one, other courts have asked and and might have asked, is there an analogous law from history that prohibited people from having firearms because they were perceived to be dangerous? What we talked about earlier, looking at the how and the why. And the answer to that question, as you and I just discussed, is clearly yes. There are those historical analogs. And if the Fifth Circuit had asked the question that way, it would have had to find this law constitutional. But the court didn't ask that question. It asked a different question. It zeroed in on the fact that a domestic violence restraining order is about a person's dangerousness to a particular other person. And it said that there's no analogy for that, for laws that seek to protect a particular person from a dangerous person with a gun. And if we have time, I would read to you from the opinion exactly what its logic is, because I think it's really important to understand that. Always. And I'll link to the full text in the description of the episode too, for folks who really kind of want to want to dig into it. So the Fifth Circuit says, the purpose of laws disarming disloyal or unacceptable groups was ostensibly the preservation of political and social order, not the protection of an identified person from the threat of domestic gun abuse posed by another individual. So What the court is saying is you can protect society at large from a group of people who it perceives to be dangerous in general, but you cannot protect a particular person from the danger of a particular other person when they are armed. Not great. No. Yeah. And we're, we're going to get into what this is sort of like for folks who are working in the domestic violence prevention space in our next episode. So I highly recommend that everyone check that out when we are joined by some great folks um, from the National Coalition um, Against Domestic Violence. But for for kind of for that to make sense, I feel like we need to have a, this understanding of all of these really big legal forces at play. Um, especially because, you know, is this how how is this going to play out nationally, Shira? How is this going to slide out of Fifth Circuit? Is it going to slide out? Do I need to prepare a bunker? What's going on? Don't prepare a bunker yet. But I think that there are a few things to say about the decision. You know, one is that we see that if 
the judges hearing a case want to throw it out under Bruin, they can. We see that at least some courts are sending a message about domestic violence victims that says that when the danger is just to them, that's not an important enough reason to do something about. And I think it's also worth noting that the court zeroes in on this notion that a domestic violence restraining order is protecting only the single victim of domestic violence. But of course, we know that isn't true. We know that domestic violence can be a precursor to mass shootings. So I think those are big implications from this decision. But in terms of a national impact, last Friday, the Solicitor General of the United States sought cert from the Supreme Court on this case, which means that it asked the Supreme Court to hear this case. Um, The Supreme Court does not hear all cases that it could. It chooses. And so it decides whether it's going to hear a particular case. And if it does so here, it would probably do that next year. And the court is very likely to agree to hear this case because when a lower court strikes down a federal statute, the Supreme Court almost always hears the case. And that's what happened here. And the implications of that are really big because this would likely be the first gun case before the Supreme Court after Bruin. And it's an important opportunity for the court to explain what Bruin's boundaries are. And I just want to flag a couple of reasons for optimism on that score. So Justice Kavanaugh filed a concurring opinion in Bruin, which means that he agreed with the decision by the majority of the court, but he also wrote his own opinion because there was something he specifically wanted to say. And the Chief Justice of the court, Justice Roberts, joined that concurring opinion. The concurring opinion said something really important, something that was already in the Heller decision and that Justice Kavanaugh repeated, which is that under the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Second Amendment, a variety of gun laws are still constitutional. So this case would be an important opportunity for the Supreme Court to reiterate that point and to remind lower courts of that fact. And I'm optimistic that the Supreme Court will do that. I'm hopeful that at least five justices will decide that this law is constitutional and will explain that there are a variety of laws that are still constitutional under the Bruin test. Does this signal, do you think there's going to be more cases like the Fifth Circuit one as well? Or is that a bridge too far for us to kind of guess at this time? I would be very surprised if there were not more challenges to this law, especially based on what the Fifth Circuit did. But it's very hard to say what the outcomes will be. Every circuit has a lot of judges. Three, A panel of three of those judges hears every case. And then sometimes the court agrees to rehear the case, what's referred to as en banc, meaning all of the judges hear it together. So it can be somewhat unpredictable as to who is going to hear a case and what the result will be and whether the whole circuit will rehear it together and what that result will be. And it's also a little hard to know if this case is taken by the Supreme Court, whether any other decisions on this issue will actually happen before the Supreme Court hears this case. Because a lot of times when there is an issue that you know the Supreme Court is going to hear and you're waiting for the Supreme Court to make a decision, a judge will say, you know what, we're going to wait to decide this until we know what the Supreme Court thinks, because that may change the outcome of what I, the individual judge, would decide. So it's really hard to know what's going to happen in this time, assuming the Supreme Court does take cert, between now 
and the case actually being heard and the Supreme Court actually deciding it. Because once something is, as you, when you were giving us like the tears of the court system, there is a Schoolhouse Rock video on that. It's been a long time since I watched it. But when, when you're, once it's been decided at the highest court level, that's it. Right. Unless another challenge comes to it via another case. And the Supreme Court changes its mind. Right. That's right. So once the Supreme Court decides it, that's the law of the land until or unless, as you just said, another case comes and the Supreme Court makes a different decision, which is what happened with Heller. That was a different decision than previous things that courts had said on this issue. And it marked a sea change in how all courts in the United States had to think about the Second Amendment. And it has to be a case that they choose to hear, right? This is why the the DOJ calling for the Rahimi case to be heard by the Supreme Court is, is important because the Supreme Court yes. doesn't take every case. Yeah, there are a limited number of cases, I think, where the Supreme Court will automatically hear them, but it's a really limited number of cases. And so you're absolutely right that if the, if the Solicitor General here did not ask the court to hear it, the court would not just of its own accord hear it. So it matters that they've asked. Well, and then for folks who are hearing this and are like, okay, well, I there's a lot happening here. Shira is clearly brilliant. We want to learn more about the work that she's doing, but we also were concerned about this, right? Not just this case, but other cases similar to it that we might be hearing about, you know, in the coming months. Who knows? I, I wasn't expecting the last three years to kind of pan out the way that they were for a number of reasons, right? Where where can folks go to, to find out more or to kind of educate themselves a little bit better? Um, you can go to BradyUnited.org. There's lots of information on our website. And I'll make a pitch for looking at our amicus briefs. They talk a lot about the different issues and laws that Brady is supporting. And those are also available on the website. And again, what's an amicus brief? I feel like I just said that like I'm a child, but what's an amicus brief, Shira? So an amicus brief is is Latin for a friend of the court brief which means that it's filed by somebody who's not a party to the case, meaning they're not directly involved, but they weigh in to provide the court with information or a particular perspective that might be helpful to the court in making a decision. And so Brady and other gun violence prevention groups and sometimes other groups with an interest in these issues will file these briefs to say to the court, here's some additional information that might not be specific to the people litigating this case that might be helpful to you in making an informed decision. And it's up to the court whether to listen to those briefs, but they frequently do read them. And sometimes they can play a critical role in how the court decides something. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Shira, for breaking all of this down for us. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, want to share with the podcast? Listeners can now get in touch with us here at Red, Blue and Brady via phone or text message. Simply call or text us at 480-744-3452 with your thoughts, questions, concerns, ideas, cat pictures, whatever. Thanks for listening. As always, Brady's life-saving work in Congress, the courts, and communities across the country is made possible thanks to you. For more information on Brady or how to get involved in the fight against gun violence, please like and subscribe to the podcast. Get in touch with us at BradyUnited.org or on social at Brady Buzz. Be brave and remember, take action, not sides.